Fast, efficient and affordable business grade hosting solutions, domain registration, SSL certificates and more. We also monitor and provide website security and update services, website builds, email hosting amongst other sensational products. If you have a question about your web page or your presence on the internet in general, no job is too big or too small. Visit our website today or better yet, contact us at blueoceanwebhosting.com.au and leave your website issues to us. Big ones, little ones, fiddly ones, powerful ones. The ones for the car or the truck, caravan, boat, mobility scooter, solar system. In fact, for any kind of battery, go straight to Battery Central Ipswich. They'll even help you when you know what you need to power but have no idea what'll do the job. Battery Central Ipswich, 280 Brisbane Street, West Ipswich, in the yellow building. Expert advice, better batteries, best prices every day. That's Battery Central Ipswich. Welcome to episode 768 of the Aussie Tech Heads. I'm Jason Oakley and this is Will Tompkinson. Hey, Will. Good evening. How are we? How are you doing on this wonderful evening? I thought we were going to start going into colder times, but we got 26 and 27 this week. Lightweight. We had 31, 32 this week. Whoa. Yeah. That's, That's winter for you. Yeah. It's I on mean, the way. We've got all the way down to 16 degrees. <laughs> 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 it's stupid. I think yellows are about that too. Oh, I mean, and then we're getting rain every day, so it's still muggy as. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, I'm sitting here with the fan on right now. Like it's just, I'm supposed to be rugged up this time of year. Yeah, I got the AC on back there because I came in here and the rooms. Well, I'm mining Bitcoin, so the computer's on and the <laughs> graphics cards go, and the room's locked up. So it's no wonder it's 24 degrees in here. But <clears throat> can't yeah, complain. Yeah. The two heaters up there, the the AMD uh, Threadripper and the old AMD like X12 or whatever it is, they're, they're not known to be thermally efficient, <laughs> that's for sure. I might as well leave it going overnight when it gets to winter and then I won't need to use the AC very much. Yeah, it'll pay for itself by not having to turn the AC on. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, I had a weird thing happen this week. My I... Um, Every now and then I go into the Tesla app to check on my Powerwall and see what's happening and that said, cannot connect to the network. And I was like, that can't be good. So um, I tried it again the next day, still not working. So I rang up the uh, guy who installed it all and I said, dude, something's gone wrong here. And he's like, oh, sometimes they do an upgrade so there's an outage, give it a day or so and get back to me. So next day i texted him no it's still out so he said all right i'll um send someone around tomorrow to have a look at it in the meantime i did a bit of googling around and went outside and reset the gateway 
it had lost its network somehow. So once the gateway had reset, everything came back again. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they they don't um, they don't store their data logs, which is strange. They must they must be stored like must be live to online. Yeah, and they mustn't have any local storage. Well, I know my my um, LG one, the inverter on there from Solar X. It it uh, if it can't communicate, it still keeps the data and then uploads it when it reconnects to the network. But mm. this gateway, I've just got missing data for a couple of days because. It didn't store it. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's about. I have heard that's a thing. I was actually looking at, about it today, and apparently they just don't store local data. It's just <laughs> they're designed to be always connected, and if they're not always connected, they don't necessarily do work properly. Yeah. And then um, when I was checking it in the app, I start the app up to see if it's all connected, and then I get this, oh, you've got a notification in the Tesla app. I was like, oh, that's new. I haven't had one of them before, so I have a look in the inbox and it goes congratulations you're now eligible to sign up to the tesla virtual power plant in your area so they you can interesting um, interesting idea that i was actually reading about that a couple of days ago i don't know why it popped up in my facebook feed but yep it's um pretty pretty neat concept actually you can feed back to the grid when it needs it and they said that's part of the reason why when um Adelaide had the power outage and um, from the coal factories and they couldn't supply it and it was all of the solar um, homes that supplied the grid. It was mostly from the Tesla virtual power plant. Yeah, because they can get smooth power. See, solar panels are fine and dandy if you're not relying on them as, uh, as a power generator. If you're using them as a... They're fine to generate power, but they're not fine to generate power directly to something. Mm. You need to have a buffer in the middle, whether it's a battery bank or a big capacitor bank. The panels themselves are very, very unstable. Mm. So that's why the, the power walls are good for that. But it'd be interesting to see, like, obviously, it's still relatively new technology in the scheme of things, having your a battery backup on your house, um, which effectively is it's a giant UPS. Yeah, well, we had the power was switched off in this area yesterday. Dad didn't have any electricity from 9 a.m. till about 5 p.m., but I didn't notice. I said to my daughter, the only thing is I can't say, sorry, boss, I can't work today. I got no electricity because the emergency power on the power wall kicks in. And I didn't didn't know if it had kicked in or not because I couldn't connect to it in the app. So I was like, well, we're probably on the Tesla backup and the LG Chem, but I can't tell you. And then I saw the the LG Chem started going down. So I was like, okay, it's obviously used up all the Tesla power in that battery. So now it's going into the LG Chem. Yeah, I'll see during the day your panels will be replenishing it to some degree. Yep, yep. So, you you know, if you normally got four hours backup, you'd probably get six or seven hours backup just because your panels are helping. But as soon as it goes dark, you're in trouble. Yeah. And also <laughs> it doesn't help if your ASIC is still running. Yeah. It chews through it like crazy. <laughs> and your aircon and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought I'll check out the Tesla power bank and it's through Energy Locals, which I had, like, one or two uh, electrical companies back. and uh, But then you got me onto Amber, and it's, like you were saying to me, basically the same sort of thing. It does smart shift for when prices go up for electricity per kilowatt. It kicks the battery in, even if it's 
the afternoon and it's not totally all the sun's gone and stuff like that, but the price is jacked up. So they don't mm. want you to spend money there. So they just take it from the battery. When the price comes back down again, it automatically switches through the smart meter. And so that's probably why you haven't got the rebates that I was getting because I didn't have the battery. I had the solar, but I didn't have the batteries. So uh, normally when the power spiked early in the morning or late in the afternoon, my panels weren't doing much. Ah, so you get the, yeah, and because I'm not using it because of the batteries then. Yeah. yeah. I had a, I had a guy ring ringing the doorbell a couple of days ago and he's like, hi, I was going to come tell you about solar stuff, but I just looked at your roof and you've got a load of solar on your roof. I said, yes, <laughs> and I got two batteries. One of them is a power wall and, and it's got smart shifting and all this. He's like, Okay, I haven't really got anything to sell you. I'll go on to your next little neighbor's place. <laughs> it's like when Telstra rings, you go, hey, I can offer you all this stuff. So like, can you really? Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> can you do unlimited ter- uh, gigabyte internet? Um, no. We want to charge you some money for that. Quite a lot of it, actually. Mm. Can't do nothing for me then. Try again next year when I'm back in your books again for another phone call. Yeah. When, when you still can't do anything for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Well, now yeah, I'm with Optus. They don't think they bother me too much. But I put the, because of the spam calls I was getting, I put the higher software on my phone. I get maybe two or three phone calls a day that's supposedly in um, Victoria. And then yesterday I got one from Germany, supposedly, but it's probably spoofed. And... Yeah, I just, if I don't know what they are and they come through, I let them just switch them to voicemail. Otherwise, Hiya says, well, this has been reported as a telemarketer, so we're not even going to answer the call or let you know it's happening. Just just know that we blocked it. So I'm like, yeah. good. So Telstra could be ringing me from their third party to, to try and get me back from the telemarketers, but my phone's probably saying, no, you're a telemarketer and <laughs> hanging up on them. That's the thing with the Xiaomi one too. Like you don't know, like unless I actually go in. Yeah, actually, just went in and had a look at my my phone calls. Yep. And I've had like four today that are blocked and spammed. Like they don't even show up. I don't even know that's the thing. Oh. I just I get a thing that says um, the so you got a phone call from this number or private number and they didn't leave a message. I'm like, of course they didn't leave a message because they it's. <laughs> shite <laughs> i didn't realize how many how much spam's the problem i've got another i've got my old um note three or four yep that i'm using as just a spare phone at work um and it's just the like it has virtually nothing on it's only, only really used because it's got the bloody google authenticator yep app on it um and it must get a dozen spam calls a day but it doesn't filter them because too old the generic Samsung software doesn't filter stuff. Yeah. So, so weird seeing spam calls come through. <laughs> You're not used to it on your main phone. No. It's no. not something I've had to worry about. Yeah, so I, I had a look, and it seems that Amber has got much better rates for just about everything. It's got $0.12 cents feed-in, whereas Energy Locals with Tesla has got 5 Um, Energy Locals daily feed a daily charge for having access to the network is like a dollar 65 a day and uh amber is a dollar 40 and the same goes for 
charged by a kilowatt for peak, off-peak, shoulder, controlled load. Everything is so much cheaper with Ember that I'm already doing basically the power plant thing myself with the two batteries. So I, I sent him an email yesterday and said, I'd like to try out this new Tesla thing just because there's Tesla and also you get a $100 welcome bonus if you have... If you sign up and buy a new Powerwall at the same time, you get $200 a year credit. And um, they apply that against your stuff monthly, against your bills. And um, what was the other thing? Something, something else. Oh, they extend your Powerwall warranty to 15 years instead of 10. And I'm like, mm, it's tempting, but... So I emailed him yesterday and said, can you convince me to move? And I haven't heard back, so I don't know. So it's just looking here, the, the feeding tariff for solar in Queensland is only 0.5% from Amber. Mm. <laughs> what the what? Yeah, that's why I left them. Because uh. uh, they're feeding... Ta- well, I've got such a large solar system that like, I, can use, I can't use all the power and I generate a heap. Yep. I was generating whatever it was, I can't remember the, the, the figure now, but I was getting like $3 back every month. I'm like, that's not That's cool. not right. <laughs> so the one I'm with, the guys I'm with now, which um, I'm just trying to look it up. I can't remember who it actually is. Yeah, it had some uh, weird name, um, right? Yeah, but I'm just seeing if I can quickly see It's like it Enigma. Um, but I get uh, like 11 or 12 cents. Yeah, with them, but they also don't have. Most of them have, after you've exported like five, it's some random number. It's like five or six kilowatts or something. They um, they cap the exports. All oh, right, but these guys don't do that. Yeah, it's um, uh, Elysian, Elysian. Yeah. So they were they were cheaper in their normal. Um, their normal usage they were cheaper on the daily re- daily monitoring and they had a higher feeding tariff yep. um, and like you've got this uh, there's, there's, they've got a few different ways of doing it the one I'm on is I pay them 80 bucks a month regardless yep and then they either apply a credit if I've used, you know, and that that $80 a month gives me, um, I can't remember what the number is, that gives me like um, a thousand kilowatts or something per month of power to use. Yep. And then I pay extra if I go over that, but my solar comes on top of that. So often I'll pay the 85 bucks a month. Yep. Um, but I get, you know, I might get 20 or 30 bucks back. Anyway, yeah. Um, because I've put more in with the solar. See, I put a hundred last month, and it was relatively cloudy, and we're using the aircon all the time. Um, I still put a hundred and fifteen dollars worth of solar back in. That's all right. Um, you know, whereas with with Amber, I was putting in you know three dollars. <laughs> the yeah. ironic thing is, Amber doesn't have electricity; they source it from energy locals. Which yeah. is where the Tesla stuff is through. So I'm like, what? How are you? I don't know. So, yeah. But in, if they don't email me back, I don't know. I'll just stay where I am. Because, I mean, another well, five yeah, years warranty is nice, but. 
it's working for you. I mean, yeah. You know. I'm paying uh, like would, um, fifty dollars a, a month. Yeah, I mean, if I had a power wall, it probably would have worked for me too. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't have the power wall, it it wasn't. It's not designed to work in the way I was. I just thought because I had such a big solar system, I might have got away with it. Yeah, but, but you um, want the feed in. Yeah. And point five or centers. I'm getting nine cents with with them, but I get nine cents. It's kind of weird they do this bonus thing, like you get on on a cloudy day, you get more, like you get like twelve cents. All right. If it's a bad weather day, and then you get like nine cents if it's a clear day. <laughs> it's really weird, but yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, you do it works, right? Yep. Keeps your car running too, or your work van. Well, I charge out at work anyway because I'm there. All oh, right, that's a good way. We actually, because we're through a business, we get a cheaper rate anyway. Yep. So it's like a couple of bucks a day. It's not. Do you get yeah, anyone use... using your um, outside outside socket that you advertise? Um, I've had a couple of people just like message me to confirm that's available, but I haven't had anybody use it yet. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so, yeah, because on the plug share app. I put them in because I got 15 amp sockets, so it's a bit more. U- it's not super useful, but it's more useful than a normal PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you're coming in to get you know some stuff done anyway locally, if you want to go shopping across the road or whatever, they got nothing over there. So yeah, if you're gone for an hour, at least you know you put. You need to have a big sign out the front. Charge your EV here while you shop across the road. <laughs> I'd love to put an actual EV charge point in, but damn, they're expensive. Are they? Yeah, they're far more expensive than they have a right to be. Yeah. Um, but they're like they they charge an exorbitant amount of money to put them in. It'd be good if you're going to the movies or something. Just park your car at wheel shop, plug it in, go to the movies. When you come back, it's all charged up, and off you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as I said, like you're going to get a relatively slow charge, but you know, I can do on mine. I can do about. Um, 25k's or so per hour, 25 to 30k's per hour. So, you know, in terms of charge rate. So, if you just want to top up, you know, that's not a bad way of doing it. Yeah. Um, just I as long as you're not very... having to travel at 25 kilometers an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have noticed though that um, since I've done a few long trips and run the battery pack right down to empty and done the fast charge to bring it back up a couple of times has actually increased my capacity a bit ah so when i first got it because in japan they very rarely use fast charges they're almost all exclusively charged off wall charges and they're 110 volts so yep they charge at like you know even even half the rate that they charge a normal powerpoint charger here so it's a really slow trickle charge yep and it kind of the batteries get lazy and I was, for the first, you know, six months I had it, I was averaging about 120 odd Ks to a charge. Yep. Keeping in mind that it's, it's only a small battery pack and it's only designed as a runaround. Um, but since I've, the last couple of months, I've run it around, run it below zero, like to the point where it's the gauge class has just given up even trying to tell me how much is left <laughs> in it. <laughs> and then I've gone and hit it with a fast charger to bring it back up. 
Um, I've got I'm up to like 140 k's range, so I've gained like 20 k's range. Just oh, by, nice. I must have woken the cells back up to some degree. By the end of next year, it'll be 200 k's. <laughs> no, is that how it works? No, the more you charge it, the longer it lasts. That's the opposite to batteries. Used to be the more you charge it, the less they last. It'll plateau. It'll hit. It's about. It's basically back up to full capacity again now. Um, but it's, it can only deplete from there. It can't go. Uh, unfortunately, it can't get any higher. Yep. So. I wish. Uh, <laughs> we do a bit of news then? Uh, we might as well. Telstra has again been fined by the Australian Communications and Media Authority over billing errors, this time to the tune of $506,160. Where are they going to get it? Down the back of the couch? Uh, the carrier has also refunded customers more than $1.73 million, and the ACMA has put it on notice for further errors could bring federal court action. Watch out, Telstra. They're quivering in their boots. The regulator's latest investigation was launched in 2020 after a prior investigation found the carrier had overcharged more than 10,000 customers around 2.5 million over 12 years. That action is also concluded with a former direction that Telstra comply with billing accuracy rules. Well, that didn't work then if they get fined again. It's their own rules, yeah. In a follow-up investigation, Telstra reported itself to the ACMA, which found another 11,600 customers had received inaccurate bills, including 4,400 billed wrongly after the prior direction was issued. The errors occurred between July 2018 and October 2021, and Telstra committed to issuing refunds. ACMA Chair Nerida O'Loughlin said the infringement notice was issued because Telstra breached the 2020 direction. Telstra had already been formally directed by ACMA to comply with billing rules, so it should have moved to address these issues and not inconvenience its customers further. At a time when Australians are being very careful with their budgets, these errors are particularly concerning as they could have caused considerable strain and distress. Telecommunications is an essential service for Australian households and businesses, and there are no excuses for overcharging customers. <laughs> really? The ACMA said 8,000 customers were billed more than 1.2 million for Belong branded services after they had moved telcos and some of them were bought, billed more than once. There's uh, something I quickly skimmed over before that Boost Mobile um, collected something like $1.2 million in overcharge fees or something. Yeah. <laughs> Telstra's raking it in for all of their brands. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, um, well, kind of Telstra, mm -hmm. I guess they, they, it is almost a told-you-so moment for them, but um, fiber optic cables being laid um, at great expense to speed up internet connections. The researchers claim that uh, copper telephone wire already in use across the country can achieve data rates three times higher than currently seen at a fraction of the price. Oh. The technology to boost speeds may help ease the transition to nationwide fiber and maybe of use in other countries that use similar twisted pair copper wire. Ergen Dink. <laughs> yeah, that's his name. Ergen Dink. <laughs> e R G I N D I N C. Uh, and his colleagues say that twisted pair of copper wire of the type used for decades as telephone lines are now repurposed for broadband internet can support a frequency five times higher than is currently used, which would dramatically improve data transmission rates. Above that limit, the researchers found the wire essentially acts as an aerial and transforms any signal sent along it to radio waves that dissipate. 
These cables are actually very old, invented by Alexander Graham Bell. That's disputable. And since then, no one has looked into the theoretical limits, says Dink. <laughs> you know, that's the reason I chose this story, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, he and his colleagues say their findings may allow houses near fibre-optic cables to achieve higher speeds than they currently enjoy without expensive running fibre all the way to their home. So, basically, um, yeah, existing copper connections operate at frequency below 1 gigahertz uh, where the current is changed a billion times a second, but the researchers discovered that they can theoretically be raised to 5 gigahertz using a small and cheap component called a balen. Now, that, that that's for proper developed countries' copper wire networks, not our <laughs> copper networks that the pit has got plastic coals bags tied around the wire <laughs> joints to try and keep out the water that floods through the pits and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, Dink doesn't believe this will translate directly to a five-fold increase in data transmission because the error rate increases at higher frequencies. Further research is needed to determine how much of a boost is really possible, but Dink estimates that three gigabits per second is feasible. <laughs> so triple the speed. It, um, as long as it's not raining. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that, that's <laughs> that's the thing. Like it, as he said, like the higher the frequency the more you're stressing the system so the more area you're going to introduce so you may have a theoretically higher throughput but you might have a worse packet loss or worse ping time because you're introducing errors so that's what they're saying short term they're sort of short distances they're sort of saying okay if they can run optic to the pit and then all the houses in that street could stick with copper from the pit to the house as long as it's one continuous, unbroken, undamaged, unmolested, unscrewed up piece of copper. Yeah. Which doesn't happen. So it probably won't actually work. But You can't <laughs> even get optic to your... Our, our, yeah, we can't even get optic to our exchange. Yeah. Our exchange is copper. <laughs> but uh, now it can be three times as fast. No, it's too far. <laughs> It would only be like, okay, yeah, okay, fine. I could connect to the exchange faster. Yeah, but the exchange is still bad. I know they actually put um, they they upgraded the exchange the other day. They were putting um, uh, satellite two uh, ah. a satellite on it. Yep. So I don't know if they're using that as a fallback or if they're just using it to increase the throughput for less speed speed sensitive stuff. They they've got an account at Starlink. Yeah, probably. <laughs> That's what they've done. Hey, Elon, can we get on some of that? We don't want to send up anymore. Did you see how they're going to launch satellites now? They're going to put it, spin it up and shoot it off into space. Well, they reckon, see, they reckon they've already done it. Yeah. They reckon it's the future of sending satellites out instead of on rockets and stuff. In, Slingshot I can't, it. can't possibly think of anything that could go wrong. No. Seems like a completely well thought out and, and impeccably. What if the capacitors got dizzy or something? <laughs> you might like, let the smoke out. It, it re- reminds me of um, the. I guess you could you could analog it to like the thing that throws the dog ball. Yeah. The long stick, and it never ever goes even remotely close to where you point it. So. No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Same principle. Yeah. 
they're, they're, they're aiming for that, that quadrant over there and they end up in the ocean over there, but it's close. Isn't that how Star <laughs> Trek Voyager ended up in the wrong quadrant? <laughs> Which time? <laughs> I love that show, but man, they couldn't navigate. No. <laughs> but they did turn into lizards. So oh, they yeah. got that going for them. Is, is, that, is that a positive thing? Oh. <laughs> Evolved. Apple is launching its DIY phone repair service in the US today, making spare parts available for the iPhone 12, iPhone 13, and third-generation iPhone SE. When the company announced its self-repair service repair initiative last year, Apple said it planned to sell over 200 individual parts and tools to customers. They're only available in the U.S. for now, but Apple plans to expand the program to other countries as well as additional devices like Macs equipped with M1 chips later this year. Parts are available through Apple's self-service repair store. Tool rental kits will also be available to rent for seven days at a cost of $49 for customers who don't want to buy the tools outright, they said. The so pro- you can rent them for $49 or buy them for three. Yeah. <laughs> The program marks a significant shift for Apple, which has historically placed limits on the availability of genuine replacement parts. While alternative aftermarket parts are sometimes available, Apple's devices have occasionally shown ominous warning signs if they've been repaired with non-genuine components. However, with the self-repair, self-service repair initiative, anyone in the US is free to buy a replacement part directly from Apple, safe in the knowledge that it should function exactly as intended. Apple previously cautioned that its DIY repair program is aimed at individual technicians with the knowledge and experience to repair electronic devices and that the vast majority of customers should still go to a professional repairer. But there's nothing stopping confident customers from attempting repairs themselves and Apple is offering repair manuals that are available to view before purchasing parts. Apple says parts will be sold to customers at the same price as its existing authorised repair providers and that in some cases it will offer credit if customers return a replaced part for recycling. For example, TechCrunch notes that an iPhone 12 or 13 battery still costs $69 with a potential $24.15 credit for returning a replaced part. Displays for the same phones range in price from $225.96 to $309.96 with a potential $33.60 credit. Apple's DIY pricing isn't much cheaper than simply paying the company to conduct the repairs itself. However, although it gets better once you factor in the discount for sending in a replaced part. Um, uh, batteries on the table then because last I read that article they weren't doing batteries they said batteries are still only to be done by qualified technicians you think so hmm, they don't want a Samsung fiasco I'm surprised they changed well the tech crunches are saying they do batteries there but um, last I heard they weren't I don't know we'll see yeah it's um, completely flipped for Apple, though. They said they would never, they don't even want third party technicians repairing them, let alone Joe Public. It's because there's a massive pushback on right to repair at the moment. Yeah. It's costing them lots of money because people aren't buying their products because of it. And in the EU, they're going to force them to put USB C ports in the phones. Well, 10 years ago, they started that process, and now they've come up with an idea to make it almost happen. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> So by 2050, you reckon? <laughs> by the time we're not using phones, they'll just be implant. Like, have you watched? Uh, you've watched um, Upload, haven't you? Yeah. They just do that. Elon's working on it. Phone pops up here. 
He's got yeah, monkeys but... that he's sticking chips in. It's not very nice to call the Twitter staff that. Well, Ooh. it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you see that Twitter had to... Um, I'm sure that's no secret. Everybody knows by now that he's put in a proposal to buy it. Obviously, it's still got to go past regulators. And that's why we're not actually going to cover it tonight because it's not actually official because it hasn't passed yet. But did you see that um, Twitter said they had to put... Uh, code lock on their code so that no disgruntled employers would change the code before he buys it. Oh. <laughs> They've locked the code down and only upper management have access to the code. Wow. <laughs> so unless it's like specifically some a bug or something that they have to actually get out, they're basically the code's basically locked until the takeover <laughs> happens. And they're like, well, you blame Elon if anything happens. Here's his uh, Twitter account. Go nuts. <laughs> Like everyone doesn't know it by now. <laughs> they should do. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, um, well, not Twitter exactly, but an interesting program. And I don't really know where it came from. It sort of appeared out of nowhere. But apparently 30,000 new users signed up for a Mastodon account after Elon Musk bought Twitter. What would you say? Mas- Mastodon. Uh, okay. M-A-S-T-O-D-O-N. <laughs> Um, Sounds dirty. I've never heard of. No. It's a social media platform, Mastodon, often seen as an alternative to Twitter. Gained nearly 30,000 new users on the day Elon Musk bought Twitter. Um, the, so it shows you how high quality the platform is. On Tuesday, the domain became unresponsive. <laughs> <laughs> there was, in a statement released by Eugene Rocchio, Mastodon's CEO... This, this story is just getting better and better. <laughs> Later told uh, in a statement there were performance issues. <laughs> so they're having performance issues with their Mastodon. Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> He's been mastering it too much. I'm sorry I couldn't respond sooner, he wrote. I was working all day on fixing performance issues on the Mastodon servers I operate <laughs> due to the influx of new and returning users. So... This Rockio guy, who's the CEO of Mastodon, apparently is the only guy working on this. <laughs> Set it up in his spare time as a side and project. It's the weirdest part about this whole thing. It, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, as far as them calling it a Twitter, um, you know, like a Twitter alternative. Because Mastodon's a piece of open source software that people can use as a base to create their own social networks. Although its appearance is similar to Twitter, it also differs in the same sense that Twitter is a single social network people sign up for. When it comes to the social network side of things, Mastodon holds more similarities with Discord in that users have to find specific instances to join. Yep. Um, now, you can create your own instance. You can also implement it into your website uh, in much the same way that Google Plus used to be a thing back in the day. Right. It, right. To me, that, the more I was reading on the Mastodon um, documentation... The more it sounds like a copy of Google Plus. And we know how well that went. Well, Google Plus potentially could have been very good. Yep. It's it it was confusing because engineers were designing GUIs. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of, you know proper user experience developing. User, yeah, not having user experience personnel. That's what killed that. But this is an open source version of that. It's very, very much like Discord. It's not a plug and play solution. It doesn't like there's there's much better options 
than this. So mm. I don't understand why people are swapped over. Like you, you literally go and you have to select it. Like you can have your group of friends you talk to in one channel, then you have this channel on this other topic and this channel on the other topic. It's not a just a thing you add somebody and be done with it. And it, and it's like at warlock at mastodon is your address it's got two ats in the thing yeah. it seemed a bit weird but it's... i mean i can understand tweeting something but i don't think i'm gonna master anything yeah in public mas- anyway hey have you checked have you checked your messages i just mastered you <laughs> ew <laughs> um so they, they're basically calling it a micro blog they're calling it a, a microblog federation, is what they describe it as. Uh-huh. So a microblog is obviously just a, a small version of a blog, a short word version of a blog. And a blog is basically video or text or picture or audio description of what's happening. So it's like MySpace. Yeah, or, I mean, you know, just, uh, yeah, like all of those things. That, uh, <laughs> and then... It's a federation. So you've got three main uh, grades of centralization. Most people are aware of something that's centralized. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, those sort of things. Um, they, they're hosted on dedicated servers in specific locations. And yep. usually when you access a service, you'll access the closest one that's to your location. And if that one happens to fail, then it'll go to the next one, the next one, etc. But they're all controlled by the one entity, effectively. Yep. Then you've got distributed, which is the opposite end of the, the thing. You've got your BitTorrents. Um, you've got things like Minds.com, which is a distributed network, also known as like peer-to-peer, where um, basically it's multiple, not paid server locations per se. It's generally more users' computers, and every per, everybody who runs... Um, who runs the software becomes part of that distributed network. Yep. Um, but this is a federated one. So federated falls so kind of in the middle. It's, it's kind of weird. It's a form of decentralization, but instead of a single central service, there's multiple services that any people can use. So they're still relying... They, they can be hosted on a server... Or they can be hosted on somebody's computer, like yep. much like Discord, where if I can have a channel active, actually it reminds me a lot of the old IRC in the day, or even ICQ to a point. I could have my own room. Yep. I could either pay to have it on a server, or I could start my own room effectively on my computer. And while ever my computer's on, you could access. You know, I could have users in that room. And if I shut down my computer, it turns that room off. Yep. So even though the IRC itself isn't actually hosted on my computer, that particular room is. Oh, okay. That, so that, that was a federated, a federated uh, distribution. Yep. So if you're familiar with that concept, that's basically what this is. So I can't see it as being the social media solution to Twitter because it relies too much on third parties to make it work. Uh, I can see it fan- as a fantastic tool, and there definitely is a lot of uses for it, given the fact that, especially seen as it's open source and it can be integrated into so many other things, like websites as chat. It'd be perfect for a chat thing in a website that doesn't rely on Facebook as the back end. Yeah. yeah. 
it'd be ideal for that. Be, there are some fantastic uses for this that I can think of that would be great, but not as a replacement for Twitter. No. <laughs> and just, just, it's just not. In a live Q&A to celebrate the recent Ubuntu 22.04 release, Ubuntu's founder was asked if the desktop edition of the OS would ever consider shipping with Flatpak support out of the box. And his answer was a pretty succinct one, no. He has his reasons, of course. I can't say right now Flatpak wouldn't work for us. I don't think they have the security story, and I also don't think they have the ability to deliver the same integrity of execution over time that Snaps have because uh, we built those things into snaps, he says. Adding, I like the fact that people have a diversity of opinions on ways to solve the problem, but I also think we're going to deliver a far better experience to developers and to users if we concentrate on efforts around something we can really move forward. For Ubuntu on the desktop, that means snaps, (laughs) Canonical's homegrown sandbox app format. Plus, people like them, he says. There are an enormous number of applications published as snaps. Clearly, developers like the publication experience. Clearly, consumers like the simplicity of having it integrated into Ubuntu. But he's not blind to some of the areas where snaps fall short. There are definitely places where we need to improve the snap experience on the desktop. Startup performance time seems to be really, really important, so that's something we can focus on. And also managing the boundary of security, managing the places where you want to deliberately take your application out of the box. He concludes that while a snap versus flat pack topic generates strong opinions in users, he is impassioned too and argues that Ubuntu has earned the right to go deep and do things properly and explore the paths we want to explore and make those results available to everybody to use or not use. The good news is that, of course, it's devilishly easy to install Flatpak on Ubuntu, and there's a compelling reason to do so. Some of the best open source software in development is only published on Flathub. Well, that's it. and that's why I like Pop because obviously it has its Pop Shop, yeah, by default. But it also has Flatpak. It also has Snap. It also has yeah. There's pick what you want, you know. And it not only does it allow you to use them, it integrates them seamlessly, and it doesn't care which one you use. Yeah. You know? If I don't find some, I always first go to the Pop Shop, and then if I don't find it there, I launch Discover and see if they got a Snap or something of it. Yeah, and like. I think everything except one program, and it's a game that I have, yep. I can get natively. Yep. The one game I have is called Live for Speed, and they're actually um, trialing a flat pack. Oh, there you go. As of like today, they've introduced a flat pack. So it's, you know, normally I had to run it through Wine, but obviously if they have a flat pack, well, it's going to solve that problem too. So. Yeah. And we both um, upgraded our computers to Pop OS 2204. 2204 no problems. Yeah. No, and mine's actually, I've, I've increased my performance. Um, yep. My system boots faster. Um, all my resources seem to be down. Mm-hmm. And like consumption, resource consumption's down. Yep. And my games have increased probably 10% for oh, the most good. part. Yep. Um, yeah, I haven't really played with it yet, but I haven't had... You had a couple of teething problems. Yeah, um, I can't use Wayland at all, even if you enable it. And apparently, um, I was talking to the guys from Pop on... Um, I was talking to somebody in the support channel anyway on their Discord, and they said there's a way that you can force it to work, but the guy who suggested it on Stack Overflow said it's kind of like using a hammer to turn off a stereo... It'll work, 
but it's not really what you should do. No. Um, Zoom, I had to launch four times before it worked, and now it just works every time. The same with another program I can't remember right now. I had to launch it four times. It would just, you click on it, nothing happens. Click on it, nothing happens. Click on it, nothing happens. Click on it, it comes up. And then after that, every time it worked, I don't know if it's caching something. Um, Electron apps, because I've got NVIDIA, I'm guessing, because Will hasn't had any problems. R2 Modman that we use for Valheim and also the GitHub desktop, desktop is written in Electron. And both of those I have to start now with a switch to disable GPU uh, acceleration or you click on it and it pops up and then disappears before you can see anything. Anyway, I had to launch it from command line for it to come up with the error to say it wouldn't run. And then I Googled what the error was and they said on some other Electron app, if you put in the dash dash uh, disable the GPU or whatever it is, then it worked and that worked for... Um, for, uh, for GitHub desktop, and so I tried the same thing for R2 Modman and found out it's also an Electron app. So just, for some reason, it's a known Electron issue. It's, Electron is a programming platform for making GUI applications and things, which uh, quite a few people use, but it does seem to have some issues uh, with dependencies that are no longer in glibc, I guess, for NVIDIA or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it must be because it's not. A, I haven't had an issue. I'm gonna. I, was, I only installed yesterday. I was gonna um, uh, change the the desktop, but I haven't had a chance yet just to see how if it, if it works or not. Yep. Yep. Um, but the only the only issue I think I've had is I've had two problems. One was I had to launch OBS a couple of times for it to. Um, and I think that was just trying to figure out because I've got my overlays and lower thirds and everything on my spinning disk. Yep. And despite me turning off uh, power management, I think it still spins the disk down. Yep. And when I first launch OBS, it tries to find those files and can't find them. Oh. <laughs> and it freaks out a bit, but it's kind of got over that now. And the only other thing I can't get to work is the uh, Brave browser just refuses to work now. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I have had issues with that on and off. Yep. previously but this time it's just it just doesn't even know about it yeah but having said that i'm at work today because i use um canary primarily for for my on my work computer i use chrome but for my account i use canary yeah and i couldn't go for more than 10 minutes without it losing connection to the internet oh. and it wasn't the computer everything else on the computer still worked on the internet just but canary that browser would lose connection within that that's weird I don't even know how that's possible. It no, doesn't sound like it should be. But when you bring up like Facebook, it pops up down the bottom saying um, connection to internet lost. Yep. And YouTube would pop up the thing saying can't find internet. Oh, I could load a any other browser, any other program, whatever, it'd be fine. Just that browser would not detect the internet. Crazy. <laughs> the only, only other thing I noticed was I have a couple of GNOME extensions and when you upgrade, it disables those by default just in case there's some incompatibility that screws your system up. But I found out later it actually moves them to another folder and you can just copy them back or whatever. But I just went to the GNOME extensions webpage and reinstalled the ones I wanted and they came back fine. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a few teething issues, but you get that when you upgrade like it. it Dictrim, some of my default audio settings and stuff like that. But... You know, like, I mean, you're going to get that on any upgrade you do. It's not like it's a... It, the one thing I'll say, be 
be wary of. It does take longer to do the upgrade than to do a fresh install. Yep. Um, the download is not too bad. The download was only a couple of gig, but the the install because it has to basically either work around everything that's already there or move stuff and move it back. Yep. The install speed is going to be entirely dependent on your hard drive speed. Um, whereas this computer, like my computer, because I've got the fast drives, the SSDs or the M1s, um, the first, there's about 20 minutes to do the 75% and then the last 25% was about three minutes. Yep. Um, but the other computer I've got over here, that which is my son's computer it's it's an older system but it's not that old it's you know it's still fairly powerful but it's got a, it's only got a spinning disk in it yep and it took two hours yep basically and it's just all you know, it's just pure the hard drive light's just on constantly <laughs> so it was just constantly maxing out the speed of the hard drive so yeah if you've got a slower drive be, you know, you might want to start it before you go to bed or go to work. I think <laughs> you picked it. a good idea um, in doing your upgrade about a day after everybody else because I did it as soon as I knew it was there and I started off in the morning. The download for the update went zoom to 50% <laughs> and then went do, 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 do. I'm like, well, I can't sit here all day. I've got to go to work and make breakfast and feed the cats. And so I went off and just let it go, finish downloading the background. So I don't know how long it took because I came back at lunchtime and rebooted and then it started doing the update for a few things. So I went away and when I came back later, it was all done. So I couldn't tell you how long it took to download or how long it took for the upgrade because I yeah. wasn't here when it happened. I was going to do it, but I'm like, eh, no, no I'll, I'll wait because I, I, I had... I'm not a fan of doing things as they get released because suddenly there's this giant bug that stops you from doing something. And when it's your primary computer that you're using, yeah. <laughs> I'd prefer it to not have that problem. <laughs> the worst I'd have is having to switch back to Windows 11 for a bit. <laughs> Windows, what's Windows? What, what yeah, are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we started off the uh, evening with um, Tesla. So yep. let's finish it off with Tesla. Tesla's confirmed that nearly half of its vehicles produced last quarter are already using the cobalt-free iron phosphate battery. So if you're not aware, all the, the people who complain about electric cars who really know nothing about them and have no right talking about them, they're saying, oh, but it's cobalt's mined by children in mines and they're dying when they're 12. And it's like, well, yes, but these aren't the only things that use cobalt. Like no. cobalt's used in other things as well. <laughs> so many. You know. But anyway, so there, there is a technology of batteries called LFPs, which um, don't use um, cobalt and don't use nickel. Huh. Um, and then they're a cheaper and easier battery to produce, but they're not as traditionally higher, uh, as high energy density, which means that for the size of a battery, you get less capacity. Right. Um, however, in the last couple of years, because people have been pushing or particularly uh, Tesla um, and Toyota to some degree, but, but Tesla's been the biggest push in this. They've been able to increase that density. So they're still not as dense as like a lithium polymer battery or a lithium ion battery, but they're close enough that it doesn't really matter. Yep. So um, to Elon Musk has said for years that 
they're going to shift to LFP batteries when they become more suitable. So towards the end of last year, they actually started to get to the point where they can put them in. Um, so they're traditionally cheaper and safer. Uh, it also frees up production of battery cells for other energy density chemistries to produce longer range vehicles. So it's moved its standard range Model 3 and Model Y that are produced in China to LFP cells, which makes sense because one of the largest LFP manufacturers is in China. Um, last year, Telstra also announced a shift into lithium-ion phosphate globally for its standard vehicle range, um, which is basically its Model 3 rear-wheel drive. So that's sort of its base model. Uh-huh. So they'll all be, later on the year as well, the Fremont factory, they'll all be based on the LFP cells. Um, as of Q1 2022, the Telstra confirmed the Telstra Telstra confirmed that nearly half of all vehicles are now on our LFP, or half of all the vehicles produced. Yep. Um, and what that also tells us is that about half of the vehicles they're selling is their entry level Model Three rear wheel drives, ah. uh, or the base model uh, Ys. And so the other 10, 12 options is the other 50%. So that's not bad. You 50% of your your vehicle is one vehicle. Like 50% of your sales is one particular vehicle. Yep. Um, so basically for now, they're standard range vehicles. So they're running the LFPs. The long range vehicles and the high performance vehicles, they're still running the, um, I think, they're not only 650s anymore. They've upgraded the cells. I think they're 22, 22750s or something like that. They're a bigger cell. The, the standard lithium-ion cells, they're going to be running those. Yep. But the pack now won't be getting any bigger because the packs, the actual physical pack, which is the chassis and the structure of the vehicle they're, because of the way they're made, um, they just, to increase the range of the vehicle, they just change the technology of the battery. It also means that down the track, if you have uh, a standard and you would like to put a long-range battery in it, you can literally just change the battery packs over because they'll be compatible. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Um, so for now, you know, that's, that's going to make a big, a big dent in, the, in that. And uh, obviously, Toyota's uh, Tell just released their solid-state batteries, which I believe are cobalt-free. I think they still use... Um, Nickel, but I think they're cobalt free. I'll have to double check. Clive will be happy then. Um, hey, Clive will be happy then. Still using yeah. his nickel mines. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, it, it's interesting that um, that that's and I think Ford has just. Uh, I think they've got their F one fifty range. I think it's called the Lightning range. Yep. And their electric. Um, they can go hard on that now. Um, they're big, you know, big truck. Um, but I think I have to double check. I think they're using the LFPs as well in that. Mm-hmm. I saw one. That's funny. <laughs> They've only just started releasing them. But a YouTuber I watch, he's also a drifter. He's he's into cars. Vaughn getting junior. Um, he has had one for a few weeks, and he loves the thing. He, <laughs> he's got rid of his. Oh, he still hasn't got rid of it. He still uses it when they're towing. Towing long range, they yep. still use their their diesel. Yep. But for like ninety five percent of everything else, they use the electric trucking. Oh, sweet. So, and it's then the, the the what's it called? Not the not the um 
Oh, I've got completely blank. I can't think of the, the name of it now. But that other Rivian, the Rivian truck now is available as well. There's a few people, a few reviews out there on that as well. They seem to be, ah. they seem to be quite popular. So, yep. And I did find uh, one other quick thing just to finish off. Uh, the Central African Republic has become the second country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as official currency after El Salvador took the same step last year. Lawmakers in the CAR's parliament voted unanimously to pass a bill legalising Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin will be considered legal tender alongside the regional Central African CFA Franc. Obed Namizio, Chief Staff to President Faustin Archange Tardera, called the move a decisive step towards opening new opportunities for our country. The move to consider Bitcoin legal tender received praise from the crypto community and was hailed as another step toward mainstream adoption of cryptocurrencies. Experts suggested the move could help small countries like the CAR reduce their dependence on the US dollar for global trade. Yeah, I mean, that's... We'll talk, I think we were talking about last week someone was not necessarily making it official but opening up to be a legal tender. Yep. Like it wasn't going to be their official currency, but... I think it was Stripe said today they're going to um, be using Bitcoin or other crypto so you can pay for stuff through Twitter now. Okay. I wonder if any crypto-loving person was purchasing Twitter <laughs> and they're like, this opens a door for us. I don't know if I'd want to use a public platform like that. I mean, I guess you could DM... You could make like private message, but still, I don't know if I'd like to have my key. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind having my my deposit key. That's fine. Like, all yeah. worst that can happen is people can give me money. That's that's not a problem. Yeah. But I don't know if I'd like that transaction key to be. Well, I'll find somewhere security, surely. Well, let's we'll use Stripe because Stripe's already a, a transaction platform. Yep. Why isn't it just done internally in the software? Um, that's weird. I know we're with um, Square. Yep. Um, That's really popular. Yeah, well, they've just bought Afterpay, uh, which is kind of annoying, actually, because now we used to have Afterpay and Square transactions separated in the journal so we could see what transactions come from where. But now that Square owns Afterpay, it just goes through as a credit card payment and we can't differentiate where the payments are coming from. Oh, no. So we don't know how much is coming out because you get hit with fees every time you use Afterpay. Yep. Like people are like, oh, I'm, you know, can you give me a discount? I'm like, not if you're using Afterpay because it costs me an extra 10% on top of the transaction. Yep. Like my FPOS cost me 1.1%, 1, 1 but Afterpay and Zip and all those other ones cost me another 10%. I, I can't give you a discount on top of me paying an extra 10% for the product. Like, That's right. <laughs> if you want to pay cash, yeah, sure. I'll give, yeah. You, I can give you 10% off, but I can't give you 10% off and then 10% off. That's right. <laughs> so, but yeah, and the, but apparently they're talking about um, doing crypto through there because everybody's, most people have got NFC now and most of the uh, apps that people use for trading and stuff have NFC capability. Yep. And Square uses NFC in its terminal, so they're talking about just having it set up so that you can just do a direct tap with crypto, tap to pay, and then that the basically Square gets that crypto, yep, and then whatever that 
exact second of and this is what I was talking about the other, last time my concerns with it the, the, how you take into consideration the fluctuations of what it's worth well this one actually does a real time update as oh, okay. like every 10 seconds or something it actually updates the value yep. and it takes that amount and then they actually get that money and then they transfer that at, at at the time that the transaction occurred, not the time that they get it. They, they do it at the time the transaction occurred. They work out what it's worth and they give you, they deposit the actual money into your account and they keep the crypto. That works well. Yeah. So, you know, I don't like, if you were to pay me in Bitcoin or whatever, I wouldn't actually see the Bitcoin. I would just see the cash result of that and they would keep the Bitcoin. Right. right. So, which nice. is a little bit risky for them. I mean, if they get stuck with, you know, a big $100,000 transaction in Bitcoin and then it tanks tomorrow. I get paid the same regardless, but... Yeah. You're happy. <laughs> That's what matters. But I guess on the flip side, if it doubles in value, well, they're set, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I guess they're playing they're playing the market as well. Yeah. So, it'd be interesting to see how that works out. Yeah. And thanks for listening to the Aussie Tech Head Show. We can be found at Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Email us, Will or Warlock, at aussietechheads.com.au and go to aussietechradio.com. 24-7 playback of tech-related shows. See you next time. Bye. Uh.